0: <laughs> at, at Restland Cemetery, uh, which is over off Greenville Avenue, it's right on the border of Dallas and Richardson. There's a a statue at wrestling that's played an important role in my understanding of the Christian faith. It's a a statue that I've seen many, many times over the past half century and and one that's been part of my family's story for almost all of my life. My grandparents on mom's side uh, bought cemetery plots in front of this particular statue because my grandmother was drawn to it. They bought those plots uh, years before she was diagnosed with the cancer that would take her life at the age of 49. 49. She died very young. Um, Grandma died not, not long after I turned four. And ever since, when we visit the grave, we stand in the shadow of this statue that she loved. Um, Her mother, my great grandmother, Mimi, I talk about Mimi uh, from time to time. She was one of the most uh, important figures in my childhood. She would always comment on that statue when we visited Restland, and it would even come up from time to time uh, when she was talking about my grandmother. Uh, The statue depicts Jesus with children gathered around him, which you probably know is a famous scene in the Gospels, so much so that that Jesus with children gathered around him is a commonly depicted image in art because he was clear with his disciples uh, that children are welcome always. And as for long, for long as I can remember, uh, this image has been a comfort to me, knowing that it meant so much to my grandmother uh, and to her mother, my great-grandmother, uh, knowing that I as a child was important to Jesus himself, that, that children are near to the heart of God, and knowing that uh, in a place of loss and grief, the cemetery where my grandparents are buried, uh, this visual reminder of Jesus welcoming children is a source of peace and assurance. So from the time I was very little, uh, this scene has had an enduring impact on my own understanding of Christian theology. It was subtle at first, of course, uh, kind of background image of Christianity, but as I grew up, And then later, as I heard a call to ordained ministry and began studying the Gospels in depth, and then especially after Whitney and I had children of our own, uh, this part of Christian theology has remained central to how I understand the faith. Now, in this famous scene, Jesus actually says two things. One is the one that we always remember. His clear message is that uh, the body of Christ must be welcoming to children. And I'm biased on this, of course, but I think we do that very well here at Christ United Methodist Church. In fact, this season in particular, our investment in children and youth is quite obvious. Uh, We're sending our youth choir on tour this week. We're gonna commission them for that at the end of the 11 o'clock service. Um, We're sending our high school kids on their mission trip week after next. Uh, We're hosting our annual vacation Bible school the last week of June. Many of you are involved in that. And then we're sending our middle school kids on mission trip in July because we take this this part of our ministry very seriously, which, and again I'm biased on this, makes Christ United Methodist Church an incredible place to raise kids and has uh, made it that for, the, for 50 years now. Speaking of which, as we celebrate our 50th anniversary this year, uh, every month we're focusing on a different aspect of our identity, as a family of faith. Uh, this month our word is community, community as you can see. Uh, we'll be featuring our baptism window later in June and we're, we're talking this month about one of our core values which is that we believe that all people of all ages uh, are vital members of our family of faith. From our youngest babies to our most experienced members, <laughs> it's a euphemism, Uh, Every one of us is essential from the baptismal font um, where we welcome our littlest members into the fellowship of the church to the columbarium (laughs) where the faithful rest until Jesus returns someday. Our community is for everyone. And so as a family of faith, we take Jesus at his word that he wants us to welcome little ones and we do just that. That's what everybody thinks of when they see Jesus welcoming the children. What's interesting to me is uh, that's actually only half of what he says in this famous encounter with children gathered around him. In fact, according to Matthew's gospel, that's actually the second thing that he says. He gives us another expectation before telling us to welcome little ones. Now, in the last week of the series, on June 25th, we're going to read Matthew's full account of the story, but I'm going to preview it now in order to set the stage for this series. Uh, This is a Courier and Ives uh, uh, depiction of this scene. It's from 1866. Um, Gathering children around him, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of a shocking thing, actually. I mean, what are we to do with that? You know, we spend our lives trying to grow in our faith, uh, seeking to become spiritually mature. That's one of the things that we make a goal of the Christian life. So how does, how does that connect to this, this famous scene that so many of us know So, well, what exactly does Jesus mean when he says that however old we are, we should have the faith of a child? What does that look like in practice? That's what we're going to be talking about this month. And we're going to begin today with an idea that truly is the foundation of all of our theology. So we're going to be reading Psalm 8. It's the lectionary psalm for today, which means that any church around the world that reads the lectionary is reading this psalm today. This is a short one. It's nine verses. I'm gonna go ahead and read all of it now. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the psalmist. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouths of babes and infants. You have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So scholars um, categorize the Psalms by type, and Psalm 8 is a hymn of praise. In fact, uh, as you read through the 150 Psalms, Psalm 8 is the first hymn of praise that you come across, and it's a hymn of praise specifically to God, the Creator. In just nine beautiful verses, it addresses two fundamental questions. Number one, who is God? Number two, who are we? Now, the answer to the first question, of course, is that God is the creator of all that is and all that was and all that ever will be. God created the universe and everything in it. God created us to occupy a unique place in the universe. God created us to be in relationship with God, which means that the God of all who is, all that is and all that was and all that ever will be uh, has a special kind of concern and care for human beings. That's what Psalm 8 is saying. Now, the skeptic or the atheist or the pessimist, or the nihilist, might scoff at this notion. They might think that that a human life, which is usually measured in decades, is insignificant when compared with history measured in millions and billions of years. Uh, They might might minimize the importance of humanity when compared to the whole of creation, but, but God does not. God cares for and loves every one of us. God desires a relationship with every one of us, and every one of us is, is significant in God's sight. And the reason why is the answer to the second question. Who are we? We are those who are created in the image of God. We are are different than the rest of God's creation because we were created specifically for a relationship with God, which makes us God's most important, most cherished creation. That's the message of Psalm 8. The psalmist uh, begins and ends praising the majesty of God. It's a verse that's repeated in verse one and verse nine. And then in between, the psalmist marvels at the blessing of being God's most cherished creation. I love Psalm 8 because it's a psalm that's full of hope and uh, wonder and inspiration and assurance. And in the 6th century BC, after God's people had been freed from exile, Psalm 8 became a popular prayer for nighttime, so that God's people would go to sleep having reminded themselves that each and every one of them had a had a unique role to play, had a unique place in the universe that each and every one of them had been created for a relationship with the God of all that is and all that was and all that ever will be. And this theology that, that every human being is created in the image of God is truly the foundation of everything else that we believe. Now we believe quite a bit, of course. We have important theologies of, of sin and redemption and repentance and salvation and righteous living and eternity among others. But all of it uh, begins with this foundation that we are created in the image of God. So what's the connection then with this expectation uh, that we should have the faith of a child, this expectation Jesus sets when he gathers the children around him? Well, uh, in healthy homes, and I'm talking about especially faithful homes, homes that make church a priority, children grow up knowing that they are cherished and loved, right, by their families, of course, also by God. They, they grow up knowing that they are unique and wonderful and special, that they have uh, a divine spark within, even if they can't quite name it that way. And you and I work, work very hard in both our homes and in our church to make the world a place of hope and wonder and inspiration and assurance for the children in our lives, just like Psalm 8 depicts. But then, as we get older, you know, life happens. And some of that sense of hope and wonder and inspiration and assurance begins to fade. Or maybe it, maybe it comes and goes is a better way to say it. Maybe, uh, maybe we get more jaded in our view of others, and maybe that's because of suspicion or fear or some bad experiences that we've had. Whatever the cause, we sometimes start to categorize the world, and we start to think in generalities about other people, and our own ideas uh, become hardened, and we think less of the differing ideas of others. And what's even worse, I think, is that over the years, uh, we sometimes learn to be our own worst critics, right? We have this constant critical voice in our heads. We minimize our abilities and we underestimate our worth. Maybe, maybe we even become so hard on ourselves that it's near impossible to offer grace to others. And maybe you resonate with some of this. Maybe you resonate with all of it. Regardless, the truth of the human condition is the ironic an inescapable reality that we who are created in the image of God so often don't realize it. <laughs> and that affects the way that we live. It affects the way that we treat ourselves. It affects the way we treat others. It keeps us from claiming that, that life-giving relationship with the one who came to save us, the one who, who gathered little children around him and told his followers, look, y'all, be like them. Remember always that you are cherished and loved, that you are made in the image of God, that you are unique and wonderful and special, that you have a divine spark within you even when you can't quite name it, even when you can't quite feel it. And just as importantly, remember that so does everyone around you. That's part of what it means to have the faith of a child and it has the power to change the world. As I was thinking about uh, what it means for adults to remember this fundamental truth of our faith, uh, a truth that maybe we forget over time or maybe that we haven't fully yet realized, A truth that's an important part of Jesus' expectation that we have the faith of a child. As I was thinking about that, I got to thinking about a video that I saw recently. Now every once in a while in my social media feed, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with social media, probably for obvious reasons. I use it mostly for sports, stuff like that. But every once in a while, a video pops up that just warms my heart. And I'm talking about those videos of children who get glasses for the first time. Have you ever seen these, like infants and toddlers who can't see at all or see very, uh, like in a very fuzzy way? They finally get glasses, and they can see their family for the first time. They can see their mom for the first time, their dad clearly for the first time. Uh, We have we have that video. I'm going to show it to you. It's short. (laughs) Lani, look at me. So precious. It's like bubbles
1: up in a like
0: Lani. Lani. You need them on so you can see. Honey, look at Reagan. Oh, what can you say? Look at Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> what can you say? Faith of a child. I think, I think that childlike reaction is how you and I should feel when we remember, or when we realize, when we see clearly perhaps for the first time, that we are created in the image of God. When we, when we truly get it, that foundational truth of our faith can fill us with a sense of, of hope and wonder and inspiration and assurance. To paraphrase Jesus, let's be like that. Amen.